guys, we're in the middle of a pandemic and these are trying times. It's hard on our mental health, our mental state. And this is why I love our sponsor today, BetterHelp. They're the largest online counseling platform worldwide. They change the way people get help with facing life's challenges by providing convenient, discreet, affordable access to licensed therapists. BetterHelp makes professional counseling available anytime, anywhere, through a computer, tablet, or smartphone. It's brilliant. Sign up today. Go to betterhelp.com backslash solving healthcare and get 10% off sign up fees. COVID has affected us all, and with all the negativity surrounding it, it's often hard to find the positive. One of the blessings it has given us is the opportunity to build an avenue for creating change, starting right here in our community. Discussing topics that affect us most, such as racism in healthcare, maintaining a positive mindset, creating change, the importance of advocacy, and the many lessons we have all learned from COVID. If you or your organization are interested in speaking engagements, send a message to quadcast99 at gmail.com, reach out on Facebook at Quadcast, or online at drquadjo.ca. Welcome to Solving Healthcare. I'm Quadjo Caramante. I'm an ICU and palliative care physician here in Ottawa and the founder of Resource Optimization Network. We are on a mission to transform healthcare in Canada. I'm going to talk with physicians, nurses, administrators, patients, and their families because inefficiencies, overwork, and overcrowding affects us all. I believe it's time for a better healthcare system that's more cost-effective, dignified, and just for everyone involved. Qualcast Nation, we are back, and we are busting out a timely episode on childhood vaccinations, 5 to 11-year-olds, just recently approved by Health Canada, and uh, we brought along the one and only Dr. Martha Fulford. Needs no introduction, pediatric infectious disease physician. And uh, we talk about, you know, the considerations, which this was before the NACI release in terms of their recommendations. And by the way, I think I really want to give some props to NACI with the emphasis of, you know, there are some unknowns here, but allowing families to make choices and to respect their choices, you know, whether they want to give it time or to see more data, whether they want to go ahead and eat and get their kid vaccinated early. This should be without judgment at this time. So I just wanted to commend NASI for doing that and also to acknowledge that um, these are uh, challenging times. And it, it's great that an organization at that level is preaching, respecting choices. So before jumping into it, just want to tell you about solving wellness. Check it. 270 members all looking to reduce burnout, growing by the minute. We got online workout class. We got online fitness classes, yoga, mindful meditation, nutrition tips, cooking classes, all under one roof. Great community, supporting each other, reduce burnout within healthcare professionals. $99 for the year or $9.99 per month. And guess what? Your first month is free. Yeah, change that boogie. All right, without further ado, we're bringing back infectious disease specialist talking about the ins and outs of vaccinating our littles. I hope you guys find this helpful. Let's go. Wildcast Nation, we are back in full effect with the one and only Dr. Martha Fulford, infectious disease specialist, works in the pediatric population. Welcome back, Martha. 
Thank you. Thank you. Absolutely. We we had this uh, agreed to do this a couple of weeks ago, but I think the timing is yeah, actually quite perfect. I think any moment now, I feel like we'll be hearing about Health Canada, whether they approve the 5 to 11-year-olds, which I'm sure they will uh, in terms of vaccinations. And so a lot of questions being asked. And, and I know at a personal level, I, I get texts or emails almost daily about this topic. So maybe walk us through what do we know about vaccinating our, our little ones at this time? Sure. I'm actually going to start a little bit about just taking that step back and talking a little bit in general about vaccines and, and what vaccines do and what they don't do. And remembering that, that vaccination recommendations don't have to be a one-size-fits-all. We have many vaccines where we recommend them for children, others where we recommend them for certain vulnerable groups or for people who are older because we know they're at higher risk. And so we, we need to think about when we talk about vaccinations, why are we vaccinating? The perfect vaccine, of course, stops all transmission. We have no more infection and the illness is eradicated. And that's actually happened once for human diseases and that's with smallpox. Uh, otherwise, what we do with vaccines is either they prevent clinical disease or they prevent severe disease. So in other words, they prevent, uh, we all still get exposed to the illness but they prevent us from getting sick from it. And what we've learned from the COVID vaccines, uh, and we've seen this with, with adults, that they are very good and they're sustaining the ability to keep people out of hospital. It's not perfect because some people are just vulnerable and, and that would have been true with any illness. But what they don't do very well, and I think we're a little bit disappointed because I, I think there was optimism at the beginning, is that they're not as good at preventing transmission. And so, again, when we think about what we're, we're trying to achieve with recommending vaccinations, I think it's important to, to actually have that objective, to have what's our end point when we do this. And so this brings us, of course, to the whole question about children, because the, the, the good news story about COVID, which we, I, I keep thinking isn't been celebrated as much as it should be, is the degree to which our kids are spared. And so a, a term that I've heard said before is an infection of all but it's a disease of adults. And so even though kids can certainly get exposed to COVID, they'll test positive, it's very, very uncommon for them to actually end up in hospital. And we know this, we can look at the Ontario numbers. Uh, since the very, very beginning of the pandemic um, in Ontario, 86 kids in that five to 11 age group have been admitted to hospital who've tested positive. That may not have been the reason for admission, if we look at, at, we break that down, probably in the range of maybe 40 kids have actually been admitted to hospital as a result of COVID in Ontario since the pandemic started. So that's the context of what we're dealing with. So vaccinating our kids isn't really to prevent them from getting severe disease because that's not what they're at risk for. So, so the objective is going to be, I think, um, and this is important, I think for everybody to understand, what are we trying to achieve? And we're hoping that it'll decrease the risk of transmission. So, so I think that's where, where we're at with the vaccine. In terms of what do we know so far, so it's Pfizer uh, that has uh, done a study. It's not a final study. It's a phase two, phase three trial. They uh, have 2,268 kids. It was what's called a two-to-one randomization. So 1,518 were given the vaccine. 750 received a placebo, just saline injection. And then they looked at how the kids responded. It's a very short follow-up, so that the, um, they really follow them only for, for two months after the second dose. 
um, there's a, a second cohort that that uh, was followed that also received the vaccine, but there's an extremely short follow-up in that group, at two and a half weeks. So what they did was they looked at antibody levels. And so the dose that the kids were given, it's one third the dose adults get, but it's 10 micrograms instead of 30. That in the kids, they, they form good antibodies. Now in the trial, no child has severe disease, which is not a surprise. And so it's all about um, to what degree a kid got COVID and, and symptomatic illness. And, and the numbers were very low in both groups. I think it was 17 in the vaccine group, no, sorry, in the placebo group and three in the, in the vaccine group. So again, not zero. Um, and that's what we know about it. The extrapolation, so because it was a short follow-up, they then did something called immunobridging to, to try to assess to what extent those antibodies would last up to a six-month mark. So they looked at how much antibody the kids had and then looked at and did a model based on what they'd seen in teenagers and adults. And, and based on that model, say they think it'll be effective at six months. The study wasn't powered, actually. They didn't look to see whether, um, uh, to what extent uh, transmission was, uh, was uh, decreased. They just didn't look at that. And also, we know from adults that in the first period of uh, the first few months, there is actually a good decrease, and it seems to wane. So I think there are a lot of questions. I think we'll, we'll find out very quickly uh, to what extent it stops transmission. But of the group that were tested, uh, the, the side effects were exactly what we would see, what we've seen in teenagers and adults, uh, sore arm, which is not surprising. We all get a sore arm after a vaccine, after all. Um, a little bit of redness, headache. Some kids had a fever. Probably the most common, um, more serious side effect was, was enlarged lymph nodes. So, so kids did get what we call lymphadenopathy. The numbers are too small to comment on more severe side effects like um, our adverse effects like myocarditis or pericarditis, which is probably one of the most concerning ones we've seen in older people, in teenagers and older adults. But that trial, they're, they're still monitoring the kids for that. So, so that, that um, if you look at their submission, they're still tracking all of that information. So how do, I, how do I, we unpackage that information for parents? So what, what do we know? If you vaccinate a kid, they definitely get antibodies. Risk benefit, I, I think it's an evolving story. Kids who are at high risk of bad disease, so those are the kids who, we, who have you know, significant neurological disorders, who may be chronically vented. Uh, actually, morbid obesity uh, does lead to a worse outcome. So the kids who are, who are obese, who maybe are starting to start signs, early signs of, of metabolic disorders, which I know these are young kids, but unfortunately we are seeing it. These are the kids who probably benefit from being vaccinated even as we get more information. Uh, kids who live in a, in a household where the parent or there's an adult who maybe wouldn't respond to the vaccine or is very high risk, maybe a transplant patient, something, uh, an adult, a very strong immunosuppressive drugs in that, that household, uh, you definitely want to take every, every, you know, chance, every sort of measure you could take to decrease transmission. In terms of the other kids, I think then it's really going to be preference of the parents. I mean, some parents are going to want to say anything to decrease the risk of testing positive for COVID. And other parents are going to say, you know what, I'm going to wait and see what the longer term study shows. And I think both are actually correct approaches at the moment. Yeah, there's, there's a, a lot of great points uh, you brought up there, Martha. One, if we if we focused primarily on the impacts of COVID on our youth, it's, I think it was great to put that into context. Like if you 
just, you know, just to put some less pressure on a lot of parents, knowing that there's only been about 80 kids in that age range that have been swap positive in hospital. And then you would take about half of those roughly that actually came in because of COVID. Correct. And then if I'm not mistaken, I don't think any kids died in not, that age. No, yeah. no. There was one child uh, who did uh, sadly pass away, but she had a malignancy and mm. the COVID was not the cause. Yeah. And, right. and no other child in the age group in Ontario has died. No, that is correct. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that's, that's a really important point that uh, I think sometimes doesn't get emphasized enough um, that, that this blessing, this huge blessing that our kids truly have been spared, relatively speaking. The other component of that, too, is from the data that I've seen, the ones that have been admitted with this typically will have the comorbidities that you've mentioned prior. I think that that's a highlight. And then the and then in terms of the studies, I, I think this is there's really important points that we need to to highlight. Like, you know, we like a lot of people want to know about the safety profile. Like this is a big thing. And, you know, it, unfortunately, just to the nature of the study, it's hard to really know from a severe disease or, or severe uh, adverse events with the numbers being that low, it's hard to to pick that up. And so I think, you know, as you said, Martha, like for some parents, that's what's the balance is like, you're going to try and balance the risk of transmitting to an older caregiver. If the kid is high risk, as we talked about, um, and the fact that we just don't have complete data yet. And a lot of people have, that's, the, that's truly is the challenge, I think, with the current state of affairs. Yeah, and we have to remember I, I, that the big benefit, and, and this is still sustained, of being vaccinated for vulnerable adults is prevention of severe disease, hospitalization, and death. And, and it's not perfect, but it's still, from what we're seeing, very good protection. That that protection is there regardless of who's around you. So, so some people are saying, oh, well, we have to vaccinate all the kids to protect the adults. But that's sort of a misunderstanding of how vaccines work. The vaccine and the adult will work regardless of whether mm. the child is vaccinated. Uh, and, and that is, is, is good. I mean, this is the whole reason we pushed so hard to try to get particularly our vulnerable adults vaccinated. Uh, and so, and we've had the excellent uptake in Ontario. And so again, it's all about, I think, making sure that expectations are realistic or that we have a clear endpoint of what we're trying to achieve. And I worry sometimes when I hear some of the language or I hear people talking that, that we're not, we haven't been very clear as to where, where we're going with all of this because COVID's not disappearing. I think pretty much everybody has acknowledged it will become what we call an endemic virus. And that means it'll become one of the seasonal viruses that we deal with all the time. The other four coronaviruses that would circulate every year, influenza, RSV, para-influenza. And so the numbers are never zero. And hospitalizations from COVID will never be zero. And, and we will always have some ICU admissions. And I think it's that people who think it's going to just be gone or that somehow the vaccines are going to make it all disappear, it's, it's unrealistic. And, and when we talk about that rolling out the vaccine for our kids, 
and and depending on, on you know what number one how health canada approves it but also of course health canada step one step two is nasi is the national advisory committee of immunization that gives us an idea of who it should be used for how it should be given what kind of dosing interval so so that's a part two of all of this but even then Remembering vaccinating kids will have very, very little impact on hospitalization rates in kids because we've never been overwhelmed with pediatric uh, admissions, never. Uh, and it's, and if it doesn't stop transmission in kids, because we don't know that yet, um, it, it may reduce the risk of a kid transmitting it short term, but, but we don't have the data at the four or five, six months. It's just not available yet. And so I think it's incredibly important when we roll these these um, campaigns out that there's a very clear explanation of the rationale and the objective and the endpoint, because otherwise it, it I think people get very frustrated. There's a lot of of polarization on what people are expecting. It's like people are pro or anti, but but we can be we can have a more nuanced message. We can absolutely want vaccines for vulnerable adults. And at the same time, acknowledge that the science isn't quite as certain with our kids. And fortunately, we have the time to get that information. Uh, the United States has started vaccinating kids. I'm hoping that the data is being collected uh, very quickly. And so it, it's, a, it's a good thing, I think, for us to make sure that we do this properly, and especially with the right messaging as to what oh we goodness. think we're going yeah, to achieve. Yeah, absolutely. Like I, I think, first of all, um, having that approach of not rushing like i, I think people gotta like objectively for the reasons we clarified realize that we actually have the luxury of time we do because the kids don't typically will get uh hospitalized and and die of covid we can see what's happening in the states we can collect more data before pushing it um how do i put this because my worry obviously is that we're going to start mandating this stuff like crazy before we have complete data. And, you know, it's one thing to have, a, a, you know, a higher collection of data and have a better overall picture of what we're um, getting into, but to mandate it and really essentially not really give kids a choice, I think is wrong. So ultimately having that luxury to, to really see what's happening. I think we, we need to, the mandate for the kids is, is, I've always sort of scratched my head about this because it's not a fully approved vaccine for, for um, kids. It's still, uh, in the U.S., it's still what they call um, emergency use authorization. And here it's interim authorization because we don't have final data. So I've always sort of scratched my head as to, you know, the, the whole risk benefit and the whole definition of emergency, of course, is a very individual definition. We all look at the numbers differently. But children you know, there was no requirement for example in ontario uh and if you look at the the what the province put out for for the so-called vaccine mandates or vaccine passports whatever you want to call them for example sports under 18 is not part of that uh, requirement and that's very clear at the provincial level and yet all sorts of organizations are just on their own deciding to do this and it's an interesting you know, I don't know, like I find it problematic when people think it's okay to go over and above recommendations. We would never have accepted people doing less than public health required. And so I find myself uncomfortable at individual organizations sometimes making their own policies because 
the risk benefit conversation at the individual level for young people is very different. I mean, we, we haven't spoken a lot about the myocarditis, pericarditis issue, but it is a very, very real adverse event uh, for teen for males in particular. And the numbers in Ontario are very clearly tracked. Uh, they're available, usually Public Health Ontario um, updates them every Friday, but our rates are actually very high. And now there are some people who think it's worth that side effect and, and it's mild. I personally would be, um, I, I'm not actually somebody who would ever tell anybody that heart inflammation is mild, mild. I mean, it's, it's a potentially significant adverse effect. And we have certainly had some very sick people in our hospital from that. And so it's a very important conversation, I think, whereas I very strongly um, believed that vulnerable adults and, and still believe that they should um, be vaccinated because I think it's the single best thing you can do to prevent yourself from getting a severe, severe disease. And in fact, have been working in vaccine clinics since February when I'm not on service at the hospital. I, I also appreciate that you can have a more nuanced conversation for young people. And what we should not do is have individual organizations suddenly making rules about a vaccine for which we have interim authorization with limited trial data. And I think rather than start to do that, we should acknowledge that there are some kids who would benefit, some families who will choose to do it, others who are going to choose to wait, and that we should accept all of those as okay while we get more information on a, the, the long-term safety of the vaccine for our kids with a larger group, and, and B, how effective it will be at stopping transmission. Uh, just, I sent you uh, actually the documents, and I mean, you know, you can post them if you want, both for the original Pfizer uh, phase two, phase three trial, so, so anybody can look it up and read the numbers, but also they had a risk-benefit analysis they, they presented. This was for the FDA, and I'm presuming it was very similar to what they gave to Canada, though I haven't seen that. But they gave a risk-benefit analysis to the FDA on whether there was a more benefit to vaccinating kids than harm. And it's an interesting document because so much of it is based on assumptions. And one of the assumptions is how much circulating COVID there is in the community. Because if you have a lot of COVID circulated, it's a very high numbers, then the benefit clearly outweighs the risk. But if community transmission is low, and then you look at the Pfizer analysis, then there may be more hospitalizations uh, in their model because of myocarditis and because of COVID. And so it's not a, a, it wasn't a slam dunk approval from the FDA. The, the deliberations with the FDA are actually online as well. It's an eight hour day where they talked about it and they had a lot of discussions, a very nuanced conversation as, as it should be. Some kids definitely benefit. Other kids, it's, it's not as, as clear cut whether there's a, a benefit. They point out that in both groups of the trial that any kid who had already had COVID didn't get disease. So the kids who had COVID were also protected. So I think there's still a lot to learn. And rather than rush to mandate and start to penalize people who are waiting for the information, I think we, we should acknowledge, A, kids don't get very sick from COVID, and B, our numbers are low enough right now in Ontario or in Canada that we should be cognizant that some people want more information and, and not penalize them for asking for that. Absolutely. I mean, this is what I, I might be a, Maybe I should be a little bit more politically correct, but the mandates, the more I think about it, doesn't make sense. Like we, you're still 
we're still trying to, we're still collecting data, as we know, in some demographics, in my perusal of the literature, you're, some young men will have a high risk of, of being admitted to hospital from um, myocarditis from the vaccine than from getting COVID. So when you do that kind of math, like, and then to say that it's mandated, to, so you to play a sport and then add the transmission point of view. Like, let me just, I'm, I'm going to just walk you through this. After, in, based on the adult literature, if you got, if you're what, roughly six months, eight months out, your ability to, to transmit is relatively high relative to, to someone that hasn't been vaccinated. So whether you are in a stadium full of vaccinated people, but if they haven't been back, they got their last dose months ago, there's still that risk of transmissibility. So what are you actually accomplishing? You know what I mean? Like you got to ask yourself, what are you trying to accomplish? And maybe the, the goal is to encourage vaccinations, but just realizing that you might not be, um, you, you might not be as safe as you think just because everybody is, uh, is vaccinated. That true protection is by you at being vaccinated, you reducing your risk of being severely ill and landing in the ICU. But I, I think this is one thing, I mean, as a father of three, young they're all boys like i I won't i won't lie to you like the the myocarditis numbers when you see them makes me pause and and makes me a bit anxious you know with with our kids and so um let let me put it this way how much in in your personal experience have you been seeing in terms of covid hospitalizations or even say covid myocarditis that's another thing that comes up too that the kids would be at risk of getting myocarditis because of their COVID. And then and relatively speaking, are you seeing much in the way of car, uh, myocarditis from vaccinations with the, with in your own clinical experience? We um, last year had a couple of kids with a post-infectious uh, um, multi-inflammatory syndrome, this so-called MIS-C, and they had some uh, heart involvement. I think we had two. Uh, we had no other myocarditis that I was aware of before the vaccines. We have certainly had quite a few vaccine-induced myocarditis, and some of them quite unwell, actually. We had one who had a troponin of over 60,000. For those of you who know what a troponin is, it's sort of a, when there's heart damage and you get this enzyme release, and the 60,000 is high. Um, the myocarditis from COVID is an interesting conversation because again, how much myocarditis you're going to see from COVID depends on how much COVID is in the community. But also I actually tried to look into the numbers here. Like where did this come from? And then actually we don't have direct numbers. It was a study that was done in the U S uh, from the CDC. And it was what they did was what, what, what they called administrative data. So they looked at admissions within one health unit in 2019 or at least uh, one of the sort of the big healthcare um, organizations and compared people who had a, a, a code, like a, a, a sort of a, a hospital admission code for myocarditis, it compared 2019, 2020. And there were more myocarditis admissions in 2020. And so it's a correlation based really, because based on, but, but clearly when you start to look at administrative data and, and just, hospital coding things, there's lots of confounders, not the least of which what other virus might have been circulating what, or not circulating in 2019. 
um, because we do see myocarditis after a lot of viruses and, and uh, enteroviruses is probably one of the most notorious. There have been some studies that have looked at, uh, who followed athletes, uh, where they actually look at any athlete who gets COVID and, and start doing heart investigations. And, that is, and that's more prospective, it's probably a much more accurate idea. The two studies I looked at, one of them had about 700 um, athletes and the other had, uh, had 19,000 athletes around that, but about 2,000, 3,000 actually were COVID positive. And then they looked at heart, uh, at, at heart inflammation. There was about a 0.6% mild, uh, sort of possible, probable or confirmed heart inflammation uh, in the athletes. In both studies, it was around 0.6%, with nobody admitted to hospital because of heart issues in those two athlete studies. And so again, it's, it's like a lot of things, a lot more nuanced than more or less. It depends a lot on the age, underlying risk factors, but probably most important is how much COVID is actually circulating in the community as to whether the risk goes up or down in terms of, of damage from COVID versus um, possible damage from or adverse effect, the rare adverse effect from the vaccine. So not an easy answer, I'm afraid. But, but, but it does, it, I agree with you, it makes me pause as well. I mean, a, a, a young person um, should be allowed to make that choice and not be penalized in terms of, of taking, a, a, you know, informed consent and deciding whether or not they're willing to take that risk. But I, I, I appreciate the the answer because it like I want to know if it depends. And and there's a great points about, you know, what are your risk of getting myocarditis from COVID? You know, what you know, and it, it's that's that's a part of the equation. You want the pieces of the of the equation to be able to make an informed decision, to make that risk benefit ratio for yourself and your family. So, you know, I, I think it's just something that I, I, I want to people to feel encouraged that you can do, like, you know, knowing what your, where your risk tolerance is, what, what, what you need, what would put your family at risk and, and make the best decision for your family. And um, I just think this is part of the, my worry is that, if we don't advocate for this, people will be left not to be able to <laughs> truly make a you look at, decision. Yeah, if you look at the numbers in Ontario, it's quite interesting. Just a second, I have it written down here. So in Ontario, up until a couple of days ago, in the teenage group, there had, and that's um, uh, 12 to 19, so it includes the 19-year-olds, there had been 242 hospital admissions uh, testing positive for COVID. Again, we assume about half of them would be as a result of COVID. So maybe 120 uh, teenagers admitted because of, of COVID. If you then look at the Public Health Ontario myocarditis numbers, and again, they're usually updated every Friday, they don't actually give us the hospitalization rates breakdown by number. But if you look at the numbers of kids or of teenagers who have had myocarditis and the hospitalization rates, it's pretty clear that we probably had an equal number of teenagers admitted to hospital because of myocarditis than have been admitted directly because of COVID. Um, and again, it's not that you know both are real things. COVID is very real. The uh, vaccine-induced myocarditis is very real, and and you know a person's individual uh, risk assessment varies. But the COVID risk is um, fluid because it depends on, of course how much is in the community circulating. And the other um, 
huge unknown that we're really not talking about in Canada and certainly not in Ontario is natural immunity uh, and how many kids have already had COVID who are already protected full stop. And in Europe, in fact, all of Europe, um, they acknowledge uh, um, recovery from COVID as giving you immunity. So even countries like Austria, which have, you know, some what I think horrendous rules in place right now, um, their vaccine passport is proof of vaccination or proof of recovery. And so I think that these are, are really important questions that warrant study and we should be able to, allow, to, to be allowed to ask. And, and again, it's very polarized. Uh, the, the conversation is, for me, very bizarre, like, like, that either there's complete denial or we can't talk about it, or people are saying it's the only thing that counts. Well, no, I actually think, as I think with a lot of things, there's a, an answer in the middle. Mm-hmm. But it is something we should be talking about. I know Dr. Moore has uh, mentioned it a few times now that the way we get to herd immunity is either vaccination or, rec- or, or, or recovery from COVID. So, so it's, we, we all know that it's there, but we're just not talking about it or looking at it. We have a great many kids, of course, who've already tested positive, who've recovered. We should also be studying those kids. Are they getting COVID again? Because if they're not, then there's a group of kids who don't need to be vaccinated. And we don't even know if we vaccinate them, if they'll have more inflammatory response, which has been described in the literature, that that people who have had COVID and they get vaccinated sometimes have more adverse effects than otherwise. So I guess I'm probably not helping you a lot because I think for me, there's there's still a lot of questions, a lot of of information that we should be studying and and getting. No, but I I think, you know, the the nice thing about some of these platforms is you get, you could, we get to advocate for certain things. And one of that one of the things that you mentioned is the natural immunity argument. And I've seen infectious disease docs go back and forth both sides of the aisle. And I know, as you said, there's probably somewhere in the middle in terms of the effectiveness of of, uh, natural immunity. I, I, my personal bias from the perusal of the literature is that it's legit to, you know, like, I think there's going to be a, a, a relatively good level of immunity from a natural infection, just not only from the literature, but even anecdotal, like from my personal experience, having not seen somebody land in ICU with a second, uh, from a second COVID infection as of yet, knock on wood. Um, But um, where was I going with this? I was going to make a good point about, uh, oh yeah. And then I guess the thing too, about respecting natural immunity, but, and just having that, that um, a level of nuance for, for treatment, like say, for example, like hypothetically, either you had previous infection, then you get either zero doses or you get a single dose or, um, and, and, or even the idea that if you're in one of those high risk profile groups, kind of respecting the idea of having a single dose of a vaccine where we know that's going to significantly decrease your risk of getting severe disease for those that are less likely to get some uh, severe disease in the first place. So, I, I continue to be baffled that we can't have a little bit more of a personalized approach or a precise approach to some of our, our, our youth. But if, the more we talk about it, the more like people don't know this stuff, man. Like if you, you go to your neighbor and they talk, you talk about some of this, they're, they're like, I don't know. I just want my kid to play hockey. You know what I mean? So I think the more we could continue to have these conversations, hopefully it helps. You know, the, and the whole um, 
you know, I, obviously I'm an infectious disease physician and, and I actually think vaccines are one of the miracles of modern medicine in terms of, of what they've done. And I think that for children in particular, it's incredibly important that we do this right and we don't rush it because if, and it, it may well not happen, but what we can't do, what we absolutely cannot afford to do is cause distrust in childhood vaccinations. Mm. These have been, they, they have saved more lives, I think, than just with any other intervention in medicine. Um, clean water, there's certain things that I think, you know, have been fundamentals of, of public health, but vac childhood vaccinations have been remarkable. And so I'm one of those physicians who is very pro-vaccine, but who is saying it's okay to pause while we get a lot more information. And then we have very clear uh, articulation of the objectives of vaccine our kids, what we expect to achieve. And we have honest data on, on risk benefit as opposed to guesswork data on, on adverse effects. The um, not letting kids play sports uh, to me is really problematic. First of all, it was not recommended by the province. We have study after study after study that have shown that these are not high risk activities for the transmission of, of COVID. And so, and we, we've got masses of information. I mean, the preponderance of data is that kids don't get very sick from COVID. There's always the exceptional anecdote, but again, that's true of every single infectious disease in the world, quite frankly. And so the, the restrictions that we're putting on our kids, some of these have nothing to do, at least for me anymore, with COVID. And it's more to do with, I think, perception and fears, and I'm not even sure why. And so I sure hope that doesn't trickle down to our kids. The, the harm that has happened to our children, and I know I've said this many times, has not been from COVID. It's been from the restrictions. The thing that has harmed our kids is social isolation, it's lack of activity, it's, it's lack of, of all of those important things. We've had mental health issues, we've had physical issues, we've got uh, learning uh, deficits now, which are going to cause lifelong harm to our kids. So our policies for COVID need to be audience specific as well. So the policy that we have for seniors or people in long-term care are unique for that population. The policies we have for our kids have to be focused on what, our, what is of most benefit to our kids and not just as myopic uh, tunnel vision on COVID or no COVID. Uh, and, and I really hope that we can get to a place where kids, this is what they need and this is what the public health policies for our kids are. And, and it should not be based on like some individual organization's decision on what they've decided they want to do. It should be based on sound public health measures that we know about uh, in terms of, of risk and benefit for the, for the kids. This is why I'm, this is why I'm scared. This is why I, like I see, I see fully vaxxed kids, uh, high school kids playing cricket with masks on outside. I, I, I'm reading that one of our universities is not going to have in-person education despite having mandatory vaccinations to be able to enroll. Do you see what I'm saying? Like, this is not, like, I got to tell you people, it's fear-based decision-making. 100% of this has been fear-based decision-making at its, like, prime. And we need to step away from that. And just because to recognize people, like, you got to recognize there's, 
there are consequences to your actions, unintended, or sometimes I wonder, like, I don't want to say that. They are unintended consequences, clearly. You know, what's the quality of education that's coming through somebody that's getting strictly virtual learning? These are, these are, this is a future. I want that engineer to be tip top, not 75% tip top. You know what I mean? Like, let's not ignore the youth. Let's focus on what's best for them. You, if you are anxious about this, I can't, like, get yourself vaccinated. Do the things that you need to do to protect yourself. But the vaccination, that is your prime way of, of, of protecting yourself. You know, like. That would be, that's for the adults. Yeah, sorry, that. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking yeah. strictly of the adults, like, that. Because, I mean, it's adults that are driving this. You know what I'm saying? I like it's, it's. I, I mean, I don't know. I don't know why, for example, anybody is having children wear masks outside while playing sports and particularly not teenagers who are vaccinated. We know perfectly well, and this is in study after study, that the trans the risk of transmission outdoors is negligible. And really then it's that sort of face-to-face contact. There have been some excellent studies um, with sports. One actually that just looked at, um, that actually had uh, movement trackers on football players um, to see how many, how much transmission of COVID would be uh, among the sports teams. And there was zero transmission of COVID while playing sports, while playing football. And that's with tackling and stuff Mm. because these are transient contacts. Whereas, and it was the same, there have been studies with hockey. There's no transmission on the rink. So where it happens, if it's going to happen is, is not surprisingly, it's where people have really close contact, maybe in the change rooms or something like that. And so the restrictions at this point aren't really based on really any sound infection prevention control um, data that we have, because we actually, all the data would show that's not necessary to do that. Whereas there are other environments, and again, it's this whole, it's not mask versus no mask, it's outdoors, please don't do this, the risk is minuscule, and the benefit of just letting kids be kids is huge. Whereas really crowded indoor conditions, particularly if it's lots of people you don't know with really crappy ventilation, well, then that's a whole different conversation. Mm-hmm. But but it's like we can't have nuance anymore, and, and it's too bad. I don't, yeah, no, we, we can't. Before letting you go, Martha, there was one thing that um, I think it might be important to comment on. When, when I chatted with Monica Gandhi, sorry, it's been one of those days, she was talking about maybe the interval between doses being correlated to uh, risk of myocarditis. I, I wonder if you have any thoughts on that or if you, if you felt strongly about that. I haven't yeah, read anything the, on it personally, but. No, it, it's sort of anecdotal. We haven't really seen it. And, and the thing is that most of the pediatric or the teen um, vaccination protocols were done really quickly. Mm-hmm. And, and so it, it feels as if what we're hearing is that if you give this, uh, so most of the myocarditis is after the second dose, not all of it. I mean, they're, they're still a significant group that happened after the first dose, but it seemed like most was after the second dose. That if we um, had a longer interval between them, that maybe there was less. This is a perception. I haven't seen it adequately documented, but to be perfectly honest, it's also because we kind of rushed the, in, in the nicest sort of way, we actually... We're, we're pushing the, the, a shorter interval on, on teenagers. Um, and, and really, the two countries have done most of the teenage vaccinating of the U.S. and Canada. Mm. The, um, the United Kingdom, um, the uh, 
Joint Commission for Vaccination Immunization, the JCVI, they actually um, recommended not vaccinating teenagers. They thought that the risk um, probably outweighed the benefit. And then the government ended up deciding to recommend one vaccine for teenagers. Uh, again, because just one dose gives a really good, good immune response. But regardless of the myocarditis um, issue and whether or not extending the dose is safer, what we've seen pretty clearly in adults is that if you have a longer interval between the two doses, that you, there, there seems to be a much better immune response. And so the reality is, it's probably sensible to have about an eight-week period regardless because it seems to induce a more sustained uh, immune response in the recipients. And so uh, there's a perception anecdotally that we may see fewer adverse effects with, with a longer interval. And so that would be good if that were true. But for me, even more important is I, I, it seems to work better. That's very helpful. That's a great point that would be remiss not to mention is that there seems to be a, a more robust immune response with the, the longer intervals. Martha, as usual, super informative, nuanced, balanced, reasonable. I, I, I really appreciate your time. And I, I think, I hope, I know, actually, this is going to be helpful for many parents that, are, that might be struggling with this, this uh, decision, having an approach in mind that uh, could be suitable for their family and and once again, no judgment, people. You you do what you think okay. is best for your family. And um, yeah, because this is a very unique situation compared to earlier in the pandemic. It is. And, and different risk-benefit conversation. I think that's really important. And I really, really hope that we could just respect each other's choices. Uh, that there's, there's, particularly for our kids, there's not really a right or wrong answer right now. Okay, no, I take it all back. The right answer is to let kids be kids. Okay, so I actually feel very strong about that. I personally, at this point, do not think we should be having any restrictions on our kids. We know a lot about COVID in kids. We know that the single most important thing for the health and well-being of our kids is to just let them be kids again. Okay, so now that I've got that off my chest, the allowing respect of decisions, understanding that it's not clear cut with this age group, I think is really important. And I'm hearing some terribly sad stories from the U.S. already that, you know, their kids were all allowed to play up until one group got vaccinated. Suddenly they're not allowed to play together. I'm going, there is no difference now than there was a month ago. And so do not discriminate. Do not start playing that game with our kids this, that to me, of the, the, the most, the worst conceivable thing that could happen if we start to see discrimination and punishment and, and sort of ostracization of kids based on something that is just not medically appropriate. And so the, the single most important focus for me is respect the family decision, because whatever the decision is, is okay, and do not punish our kids, because that, that no, they've already had far too much harm. Absolutely. And just to kind of... Re- reiterate the, the the discrimination piece like you'll you'll see a lot of talk people about um you know once again do you mandate it for schools for example and re- recognize as a as a guy that represents you know w- w- wants to speak for the BIPOC community that this is a group that often could be hesitant and then often could be we've talked about this many times mistrust in the system you know a lot of these kids are already behind you know and they've they've 
suffered from the restrictions that have happened throughout the pandemic. And so you're going to tell, I don't want a 12 year old kid to be in a situation or an 11 year old kid to be in a situation where their parents say we're not ready to be vaccinated and that kid can't go to school in person. I will not accept that as, as being okay. Uh, that is that's not okay. That is not okay. This is not the Canada we 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 came to love, and so um, you know, have that context when 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 people are talking about oh, make it mandatory. Um, once again, there's been so many unintended consequences during this bad boy. We don't need another one. And again, remembering our kids, the risk for the kids is simply not there the way it was or and remains for, for more vulnerable adults. And so that's why I can't say often enough, policies for our children need to be focused on what is best for our children. Understanding that the vulnerable adults, anybody who chooses to be, has been vaccinated and protected. And so, so you don't need to have the kids vaccinated in order to protect the adults. If the adults have been vaccinated, they've got their protection. And fortunately, most adults have elected to, to choose to do that. But I'm just gonna just touch on what you said about, about communities. So I've been working in Hamilton um, at the vaccine clinics and for most of October, I was helping out with the shelter health. And it's very easy. You can just look at by postal code where our lowest vaccination rates are. And that matches spot on with what we, we've call it in the past our code red postal code. So these are the communities that already have the most barriers, where we have the most discrimination, new Canadians, language barriers, socioeconomic class. So it's very real, this conversation about access and understanding. And it's not just anti-vaxxers. It's a term I actually have come to hate because it's, it's a meaningless, horrible, divisive term that doesn't capture at all the complexity of what's happening in our society. And so if we go and we look at which community maybe doesn't have as much vaccine uptake, if we understand what the barriers are, if we actually go to them, it's a much more successful strategy than just labeling them and all this divisive and discriminatory language that's happening in Canada, which, like you said, this is not the Canada that I grew up in. Amen. Well, well said, Martha. Thank you so much. You know we're going to do this again in the future. People Thank demand you. it. Thank you so much. Quadcast Nation, I know that was informative. I know you love this one. Leave any comments at quadcast99 at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube at Quadcast. Leave a five-star rating, y'all. Helps with the visibility of the show, whether that's on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. And everybody, thanks for listening. We love you. We'll connect again real soon. Peace.